Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Mysterious Tales of Loss and Woe and Other Jovial Stories, a new book by Truist Dunkworth. In a world of wonder, this is a book that encourages teens and preteens to think and be surprised. Look for it on amazon.com. You're listening to episode 140 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about when the four Gospels were written. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode. We'll have your feedback on our recent episode on lie detectors. But first... For 2,000 years, Christians have turned to the four Gospels as the primary source of information about their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even secular scholars acknowledge Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as our best sources of information about this pivotal figure in world history. But in recent times, some skeptics have challenged the four Gospels, arguing that they were written so long after the life of Jesus that they can't be trusted to contain reliable information. What is the truth about the matter? What do contemporary scholars, skeptics, and Christians alike say about the subject? And when were the four Gospels really written? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, why do people care when the Gospels are written? The basic concern has to do with whether the Gospels are accurate records of the life and teachings of Jesus. A claim that is sometimes made is that after the time of Jesus, he became a figure of legend and Christians made up stories and teachings that they mistakenly attributed to him. And then eventually those legendary stories were written down in the four Gospels. But it takes time for legends to develop, and so for this claim to be plausible, the Gospels would need to be written late. If they were written early, there wouldn't be time for such legends to be formed, and so you couldn't dismiss the Gospels as non-historical in this way. How plausible is that argument? Not very likely, and for more than one reason. The first is that biographies can be written long after a person lived and still be very high quality, as long as the person writing them was competent and had good sources. The second reason is that the Gospels actually were written very early. In this episode, we'll be discussing both of those reasons why the argument isn't plausible. What are the latest dates that significant scholars of any stripe have ever tried to assign to the Gospels? In the early 1800s, there was a school of thought in Germany based around the University of Turbingen. It was led by a man named Ferdinand Christian Bauer, or F.C. Bauer. 
He was deeply influenced by the philosophy of Hegel, who held that history plays out according to a pattern where one movement gets started, then it gives birth to a rival movement, and then the two movements sort of fuse. This process is referred to as thesis, antithesis, synthesis. First, you get the initial school, the thesis, then you get the rival school, its antithesis, and then from those two schools, the synthesis emerges. Under the influence of this philosophy, Bauer proposed that the earliest form of Christianity was heavily Judaistic, but then a rival school emerged that was heavily Pauline, and then the two schools merged to form a Catholic synthesis. But Bauer dated these events really late, and he put all of the Gospels in the mid second century as the Catholic synthesis was emerging. He saw Matthew as a Judaic gospel that was written by someone who wanted to merge the Judaic perspective with the emerging Catholic one, and he thought it was written around AD 130, about 100 years after the crucifixion. Luke was written by a Paulinist who wanted to merge that perspective with the Catholic one, and Luke wrote about 20 years later, perhaps around AD 150. Mark then merged both of these as part of the Catholic synthesis around maybe AD 160, and John, a sort of Gnostic Christian, wrote last of all between AD 160 and 170. So in his view, the earliest gospel was written around 130 and the latest by 170. That means that the gospels were all written between 100 and 140 years after the crucifixion. That's the difference between the current year, 2021, and events taking place between 1881 and 1921, if you want to get a kind of sense of the distance in time in a modern term. And then how well did the views of Bauer and the Tübingen School hold up? Not well. The Tübingen School rapidly lost influence after the 1840s, and the gospel dates proposed by even liberal scholars were walked back towards the first century. One reason is that Bauer's initial Hegelian premise of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis has been challenged. It's more of a philosophical assumption than one that can be borne out from religious history. I mean, how often do you have two radically different schools start and then have them get back together in a fit of ecumenism? Uh, after a religious break occurs, mergers tend not to happen all that often. Even very similar groups like the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Lutheran Church Wisconsin Synod, both of which are conservative Lutheran denominations, remain separate. And it's easy to find numerous parallel examples in other Christian traditions. Another reason for challenging Bauer's dates is that we have the writings of St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who wrote around AD 180 to 190, so maybe as little as 10 years after Bauer thinks John was written. Yet Irenaeus is adamant that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, go back to apostolic times. So how likely is it that Irenaeus would be mistaken about this if the Gospels were being written in his lifetime? You know, most or all didn't exist when he was a child, and some would definitely have been written when he was adult. So why would he think all of these definitely go back to the apostolic age if they were written in his own life? It's not very plausible. Yet another reason scholars started walking back the dates of the Gospels was archaeology. 
1935, an early papyrus known as P-52, or the Rylands Papyrus, was published, and it was initially dated to the first half of the second century, so between 100 and 150. That would give it an average approximate date of 125. But the thing is, the Rylands Papyrus is a fragment from the Gospel of John, that was found in Egypt, which would mean that copies of John were floating around Egypt by AD 125. Scholars figured, therefore, that it would have taken time for John's gospel to make its way to Egypt, and even more time for enough copies of it to have been made in Egypt for a fragment like this to survive the ravages of the ages. I mean, getting one copy to Egypt is not enough, because that copy is probably going to be lost. You need bunches of copies to get made there if something this early is going to survive. So they reckon that the Gospel of John must have been written by the end of the first century to allow it to get to Egypt and then be copied enough for us to have the Rylands Papyrus. And so it likely, according to this view, would have been written in the AD 90s. But since everybody agreed that John was the last of the four Gospels to be written, that would put the other three Gospels even earlier in the first century. Now, more recent scholars haven't been sure that the Rylands Papyrus is quite as early as initially estimated, but it's still a second century fragment, and so the dates assigned to the Gospels by mainstream scholars have not been affected much. If John was the last Gospel written, which was the first? There's a question about that. While basically everybody agrees that John was written last, there's a question about the order in which the other three were written. These three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, present the ministry of Jesus in very similar ways. So they're called the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic comes from Greek roots that mean seeing together or sharing a common perspective. And since Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a common way of presenting the ministry of Jesus. That's why they're called the Synoptic Gospels. For many centuries, the common view was that Matthew wrote first, then Mark abbreviated him, and then Luke merged and supplemented Matthew and Mark. This is known as the Augustinian hypothesis because St. Augustine advocated it for at least a period, though there is reason to think that he may have changed his mind. However, in the last couple of centuries, most scholars have concluded that Mark was actually written first, that Matthew and Luke then built on what Mark did, and John wrote last. There are various versions of this view, but that's the general idea. And because in this view, Mark came first, this is known as the Markan priority view. After an extensive investigation, I came to the conclusion that Markan priority is correct. We'll have a link to where I've written about Mark and Priority and other aspects of the synoptic problem, so you can read the reasons why I say this. And today, the great majority of scholars, both liberal and conservative, hold to some form of Mark and Priority theory, and it plays a role in the dates that mainstream scholars assign to the Gospels. What is the current consensus among mainstream scholars on when they were written? A summary of the consensus view is given by Father Raymond Brown in his book, Introduction to the New Testament. Now, he happens to be Catholic, or he, you know, he was, uh, he's passed on now, but he speaks for mainstream critical scholars, both Protestant and Catholic. According to his summary, Mark was written between 60 and 75 
and most likely between 68 and 73. Matthew was written between 80 and 90, give or take a decade, so basically between 70 and 100. Luke was written about 85, give or take 5 to 10 years, so between 75 and 95. And then John was written between 80 and 110. Evangelicals tend to be a bit more conservative than non-evangelical ones. Do you do they go along with these dates? For the most part, they also tend to put Mark between 60 and 75. They put Matthew and Luke in the 70s or 80s, and then John in the 90s. And then do some scholars hold to dates that fall outside these ranges? Very definitely. Some scholars place the Gospels quite a bit earlier, and it's not just conservatives who do so. Three liberals who have done so are the German scholar Adolf von Harnack, the British scholar John A.T. Robinson, and the British scholar James Crossley. Both von Harnack and Robinson propose that the three synoptic Gospels were written quite a bit earlier than the dates we just read. Robinson also thinks that John was written way before the 90s. And Crossley thinks that Mark was written between A.D. 35 and 45, so around A.D. 40, just seven years after the crucifixion. To preview what we're going to cover, my own views on the dates of the Synoptic Gospels are the most similar to von Harnack's. I also agree with Robinson that John was written much earlier than supposed, and I think Mark was written early, but not as early as Crossley thinks. Okay. Before we get to the theories, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Janet H., Brian G., David M., John P., and Petru. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And now's a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So, for example, if you give, if you become a new patron at $10 per month, after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all our shows, including this one, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Mysterious Tales of Loss and Woe and Other Jovial Stories, a new book by Truist Dunkworth. In a world of wonder, this is a book that encourages teens and preteens to think and be surprised. Look for it on amazon.com. So, Jimmy, we've covered the basic theories about when the Gospels were written. So how will we go about evaluating them? First, we'll look at the question from the faith perspective and what the faith has to say on the subject of their dates. Then, from the reason perspective, we'll look at how much the question of the difference in dates really matters. And then finally, we'll go through each of the Gospels and look at what the historical evidence has to say about when it was written. 
What can we say about the dates of the four canonical Gospels from the faith perspective? Does the Church have a teaching on when the Gospels were written? The Church holds that public revelation ended with the conclusion of the Apostolic Age and that the Gospels are public revelation. So that would mean that the Gospels were written before the close of the Apostolic Age. But There's a bit of a question about precisely when it ended. For one thing, we don't know the precise year that the last apostle died. It's often thought that John was the last of the 12 to die, but assuming that's right, we still don't know the precise year. There's also a question about who counts as an apostle, because it isn't just the 12. The term apostle could be used fairly broadly in the first century. We know that Paul was an apostle, as was Barnabas, because Luke calls him one in Acts 14.14. And there's some indication that people like Silas and Timothy may have been considered apostles. So we shouldn't think in terms of just the original 12 apostles that followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. Both the people who were famous as apostles and some of their associates might be considered apostles. Given that, we really don't know who the last apostle to die was, and we don't know when. Whoever it was may well have survived into the second century. That means that all of the dates that modern scholarship typically proposes for the Gospels fall within the apostolic age. So there's no problem from the faith perspective with proposing any of these dates. They all were written when public revelation was still being given, and so they would all count as Scripture. Does the Church teach that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had to be written by the people who were the traditional authors? No, it's not a matter of Church teaching that particular people wrote them. The important thing is that they were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but you don't have to be an apostle to be divinely inspired. Mark and Luke were not apostles, but associates of apostles, which qualifies them as apostolic men, you could say, you know, men of the apostolic age who either were apostles or were connected with the apostles. So people in the apostolic community could be inspired even if they weren't themselves apostles. Therefore, even if it turned out that Matthew and John were written by someone else in the apostolic community, that wouldn't prevent them from being inspired. What do you think about who wrote them? I think there's good evidence that Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew, and that Mark was written by Peter's companion Mark, and that Luke was written by Paul's companion Luke, and that John was written by an eyewitness of Jesus's ministry named John, which is why the name John is attached to it. Though there is a question in my mind, and in the mind of you know, various scholars, about whether it was John the Apostle or another eyewitness of Jesus's ministry that the church fathers talk about, known as John the Elder or John the Presbyter. However, the evidence concerning those points takes us beyond the scope of this episode. Here, we're focused on the question of the dating of the Gospels, and it suffices from the faith perspective to just note that they were all written in the apostolic age. Beyond that, the Church leaves it to scholars and historians to try to determine these matters more precisely. In other words, it leaves it to the reason perspective. All right, what can we say about the dates of the four canonical Gospels from the reason perspective? First off, How much difference does it really make? 
the Gospels are biographies, and it really doesn't matter when a biography is written as long as it's written by a competent person who has good sources. You simply don't have to be an eyewitness to write an accurate biography. I mean, today, biographers don't have to know the person they're writing about. They don't even have to be alive at the same time as their subject. Consider, for example, all the recent biographies of Abraham Lincoln that you know you find on Amazon or on bookstore shelves. No modern authors were eyewitnesses of Lincoln, yet people don't discount these biographies on that basis. What matters is that a biographer had access to reliable sources and that he handled them carefully, and the men who wrote the Gospels were careful and did have accurate sources. There is a wonderful book by the British scholar Richard Baucom called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. In it, he shows how the evidence reveals that the Gospels, all four of them, including John, are based on eyewitness testimony about the ministry of Jesus. We'll have a link to where you can get the book for yourself, and be sure to get the second edition because it includes three new chapters that only strengthen the case further. Can you give us a taste of that evidence? Sure. According to the first century figure John the Presbyter, who we mentioned, and he was likely one of the authors of the New Testament, either of the Gospel of John or at least 2nd and 3rd John. St. Jerome, for example, identifies John the Presbyter as the author of 2nd and 3rd John. According to him, the Gospel of Mark was written by Mark, who served as Peter's interpreter, and he wrote the Gospel based on his knowledge of Peter's preaching. Based on the unusual prominence of Peter in Mark's gospel, scholars have generally agreed that this is correct. Further, Baucom argues that Mark uses a literary device known as an inclusio to signal the fact that Peter stands behind the information in the gospels. You can read his chapters 6 and 7 of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses for more on that, but it would mean that Mark is signaling the reader that he's basing this on the eyewitness testimony of Peter. Similarly, Luke informs us at the beginning of his gospel that the information in it was delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. That's Luke chapter 1 verse 2. We can even tell which eyewitnesses much of the information came from. First, Luke uses Mark as one of his sources, so some of his material came from Peter. Second, Luke spent several years in Rome with Paul, where Peter also spent the latter part of his ministry. Peter thus served as a major source for Acts chapters 1 to 12, and Luke likely derived some of the material in his gospel directly from Peter as well. And we can detect other sources. For example, Luke preserves traditions derived from the Virgin Mary, and he signals this by noting how Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. That's another way of saying, and Mary remembered this, which is Luke's way of saying that the information he's recording came to us from Mary. He either interviewed Mary himself, or he interviewed people who did. Let's look at the evidence for the dates of the four Gospels. Where should we begin? We actually should begin with a work that isn't one of the Gospels, but that is in the New Testament, the book of Acts. 
More than a century ago, the liberal German scholar Adolf von Harnack published a work titled The Date of the Acts and the Synoptic Gospels, in which he considered this question. As the title suggests, he considered the date of Acts first, the reason being that it's easier to establish this date and then determine the dates of the Synoptic Gospels with respect to it. Acts is important because it's the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, so the date of Acts determines the latest possible date for Luke. When was Acts written? Evidence for that is provided by the text of the book itself. The first 12 chapters of Acts are concerned principally with St. Peter, and then from chapter 13 onwards, St. Paul becomes the focus of the narrative. Beginning in chapter 21, Paul makes a fateful trip to Jerusalem, and he's prophetically warned along the way that if he goes there, he'll be arrested. This indeed happens, and the rest of the book all the way up to chapter 28, is taken up with the consequences of this event. Paul spends years in custody, and in chapter 25, a turning point occurs when the new Roman governor, Porcius Festus, arrives. To avoid having the outcome of his trial affected by hostile Jewish authorities, Paul then invokes his Roman citizenship and the right to have his case tried before Caesar, the Caesar in question being Nero at the time. Festus then replies, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. The rest of the book is taken up with the events leading up to Paul's voyage to Rome and what happened on that trip. Acts ends in chapter 28 with Paul under house arrest in Rome, waiting for his trial. Luke simply concludes the book by saying, And he lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ quite openly and unhindered. And that's it. We get no resolution on what happened when Paul appeared before Nero. We don't get anything about what happened at his trial. Why is it significant that the book ends this way? Many scholars have suggested that the book's abrupt ending has implications for when it was written. It makes no sense if Luke knew the outcome of the trial for him to cut off his narrative at this crucial point. I mean, he's been building towards this climactic event for eight chapters, a quarter of the book, yet he doesn't tell us what happened. This is all the more striking because whatever happened would have suited Luke's purpose. If Paul was acquitted at the trial, then Luke could portray Paul and the gospel as being gloriously vindicated. And actually, we learn from later historical sources, that's what happened uh, at this first trial. Paul was released and conducted a further period of ministry, only to be rearrested and martyred after Nero found it convenient to blame Christians for the great fire of Rome in AD 64. But suppose it had gone the other way at the trial. If Paul was imprisoned or martyred, then Luke could portray Paul as gloriously and heroically suffering for the gospel as he'd done so often in the book previously. So whatever happened at the trial, it would suit Luke's purpose in helping to promote the gospel in the Christian faith. Yet Luke gives us neither of these endings, and the only reasonable conclusion is that he didn't tell us what happened to Paul because he couldn't. The trial had not yet taken place. Von Harnack comments, Throughout eight whole chapters, St. Luke keeps his readers intensely interested in the progress of the trial of St. Paul, simply that he may in the end completely disappoint them. They learn nothing of the final result of the trial. 
The more clearly we see that the trial of St. Paul, and above all his appeal to Caesar, is the chief subject of the last quarter of the Acts, the more hopeless does it appear that we can explain why the narrative breaks off as it does, otherwise than by assuming that the trial had actually not yet reached its close. It's no use to struggle against this conclusion. If St. Luke in the year 80, 90, or 100 wrote thus, he was not simply a blundering but an absolutely incomprehensible historian. Harnack also points out that Luke repeatedly records prophecies of future events in Acts, yet he makes no prediction about Paul's ultimate fate. St. Luke allows Agabus to foretell a famine, to foretell St. Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem. He suffers St. Paul himself on the voyage to foretell, like a fortune teller, the fate of the ship and all its passengers. He, in many chapters of the book, deals in all kinds of spiritual utterances and prophecies, but not one word is said concerning the final destiny of St. Paul and of St. Peter. Is this natural? There are prophecies concerning events of minor importance, while there's nothing about the greatest event of all. This further reinforces the conclusion that Acts was written before the events to which it has been building were concluded. In what year was Acts written? When does the narrative break off? This is disputed by scholars, the problem being that we don't know precisely when the governor Festus arrived in Judea, because everything is dated around that. That's the turning point when Paul goes to Rome. This is the key event for dating when Paul's voyage to Rome began, and thus when his two-year period of house arrest began. Many estimate that Festus arrived in AD 59, and so Paul arrived in Rome in early 60, and his house arrest lasted from 60 to 62. However, I have done a currently unpublished study of the issue, and I agree with scholars like Jack Finnegan and Andrew Steinman that Festus actually arrived two years earlier in AD 57. That would mean that Paul arrived in Rome in early 58, and his house arrest ran from 58 to 60. I thus conclude that Acts was written in 60 towards the end of the two-year period that Luke mentions. And how does this help us establish the dates of the Gospels? It helps us directly establish the date of one of them. The Gospel of Luke was written before Acts. In fact, they were written as a two-volume set, and a careful study of the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts suggests they were written in close proximity to each other. This can be seen by comparing the Gospel of Luke's ending with one of Luke's sources, the Gospel of Mark. Now, there's a debate about whether the original ending of Mark may have been lost, but if so, it still contains information that indicates what would have happened. In Mark 16, 7, an angel tells the women who have come to visit Jesus's tomb, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. Mark thus envisions a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples in Galilee, and that's also what happens in Matthew, if you look at Matthew 28. But Luke omits this reference, even though it's right there in front of him in his source Mark, he omits it and instead focuses on post-resurrection appearances that occurred in Jerusalem and its vicinity. He makes no mention of the disciples going to Galilee. Instead, Luke records Jesus telling the disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name, 
to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Notice, repentance is to be preached to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, and the disciples are to stay in the city, meaning Jerusalem, until they're clothed with power from on high. This is what Jesus is saying at the end of Luke. It's different than what we see in Matthew and Mark, and that difference has led some people to suggest there may be a conflict here, but really there's not. The truth is that Jesus appeared to the disciples both in the vicinity of Jerusalem and in Galilee. John makes that clear. Luke simply focuses on the Jerusalem appearances, while Matthew and Mark focus on the Galilean appearances. John makes it clear he appeared in both locations. For our purpose, the question is, why did Luke choose to end his gospel as he did? Why did he choose to ignore the Galilee appearance that is alluded to at the end of his source, Mark? The obvious answer, if you think about it, is that he was already planning what he was going to write in Acts. Thus, at the beginning of Acts, he records Jesus telling the disciples, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This directly echoes the end of Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you is a reference to the events of Pentecost that are recorded in Acts. And they correspond to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Similarly, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth is the outline of the book of Acts. And it corresponds to what Jesus says at the end of Luke's gospel, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you are the witnesses of these things. The presence of these and other elements at the end of Luke and particularly the way he diverges from Mark, indicates that he was already planning what he was going to say at the beginning of the book of Acts. This shows that Luke was not written very long before Acts. If years had elapsed, we wouldn't find the gospel ending the way it does using the same kind, exact kinds of phrases that set up the recurrence of those things at the beginning of Acts. I therefore estimate that Luke was finished immediately before Acts, likely in AD 59, and that Luke used the two-year period of Paul's house arrest in Rome to finish gathering material for and composing these two books. If Acts was written around AD 59, does that let us establish anything about when the other Gospels were written? Well, it's widely recognized today that Luke, like Matthew, used Mark as one of his sources. Luke even refers to prior written sources in his prologue, telling his patron Theophilus that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us. That's Luke 1.1. 1, 1. He thus alludes to previous writers, the people who have already compiled narratives about Jesus. And the fact that Mark was one of those narratives is confirmed by the fact that Luke uses about 55% of the material in Mark. More than half of Mark's gospel ends up in Luke in one form or another. This means that we can place the composition of Mark sometime before that of Luke. And can we estimate how much before? 
to assess that, we need to know a little bit about Mark's life story. We first meet Mark in Acts 12.12, when Peter visits the house of Mark's mother in Jerusalem. In Acts 12.25, Barnabas and Paul take Mark with them when they return from Jerusalem to their home base in Antioch. In the next chapter, the Holy Spirit calls Barnabas and Paul to embark on the first missionary journey, and they take Mark with them. However, we learn that Mark turned back early in the journey. He didn't complete the first missionary journey with them. Thus, when Paul and Barnabas were preparing to set out for the second missionary journey, they got in a fight. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp contention, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Barnabas probably felt more sympathetic to Mark than Paul because he was his cousin. Mark was Barnabas's cousin. Barnabas was kind of looking out for him. But the conclusion is Paul and Barnabas dissolved their partnership, which had gone on for years over the dispute about Mark. And Barnabas then took Mark on an otherwise unrecorded missionary journey to Barnabas's native island of Cyprus. We know from the New Testament that Mark later formed a close bond with Peter, and Peter referred to him as his spiritual son who was with him during his ministry in Rome. That's mentioned in 1 Peter 5.13. And we even learn in 2 Timothy that Paul eventually reconciled with Mark. So Mark eventually proved himself in Paul's eyes, and Paul came to respect him. Can we put dates to some of these events in Mark's life? The part of Mark's biography that's important for our purposes is the period he spent with Peter. We don't know precisely when this occurred, but the journey that Mark took with Barnabas to the island of Cyprus would have occurred in AD 49, and it may have taken some time because missionary journeys could last several years. Mark thus likely became a companion of Peter in the AD 50s. This is significant because the first century Jewish source, John the Presbyter, reveals that Mark based his gospel on Peter's reminiscences. He's reported to have said, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some things as he remembered them. For he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he had heard, and not to state any of them falsely. If Mark didn't become Peter's traveling companion until the 50s, and if he had to have written before Luke was published in 59, then that would mean that Mark must have written his gospel sometime in that decade. Although Mark likely had heard Peter preach in Jerusalem before he became his companion, John the Presbyter ties the composition of his gospel to the period when he was serving as Peter's assistant. We thus should understand his gospel to be based not just on Mark's memories of Peter's preaching from years earlier, but on what he heard during the period of mutual ministry. We should thus allow some time, first, for Mark to absorb or reabsorb Peter's preaching, and second, some time for Mark's gospel to come into Luke's hands after it was written. 
We can therefore estimate that Mark's gospel was written sometime in the mid-50s, say around the year A.D. 55. And what about the gospel of Matthew? The evidence suggests that Matthew was written after Mark, and you can see the evidence for that on my page on the Synoptic Gospel, but it's more difficult to pin down exactly when Matthew may have been written. Scholars generally agree that St. Ignatius of Antioch knew about Matthew's gospel because when he wrote his letters, St. Ignatius made more than one reference to things that are only found in Matthew. His letters were written about A.D. 108, so Matthew's gospel would need to have been composed sometime in the first century. On the other hand, Matthew was written after Mark, and that means after about A.D. 55, so we could establish an initial broad range for Matthew between A.D. 55 and 100. Can we narrow that down? I think so, because there is internal evidence in the gospel that it was written before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. For a start, when Jesus talks about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in Matthew 24, it's all presented as being in the future. Matthew never includes a note that says anything like, and it all came to pass just like Jesus had said it would. But that's exactly the kind of thing that Matthew would be inclined to do if the Romans had already destroyed the Jerusalem temple when he wrote his gospel. In fact, Matthew's gospel is known more than any of the others for including notices about fulfilled prophecies. So if Jesus' prophecy about the temple had come true, when Matthew was writing, we would expect him to include a note about it. And there are other elements in the text that point in this direction. For example, in the midst of predicting the destruction of the temple, Matthew records Jesus as saying, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. It's well known that the Christian community in Jerusalem did flee the Jewish war, taking up residence in the Jordanian settlement of Pella. And like all ancient authors, Matthew was conscious of the need to save space in his book so that it would fit on a single scroll because scrolls were fantastically expensive. I mean, a single copy of Matthew would have cost hundreds or thousands of dollars in modern money. He thus regularly drops words and phrases from Mark to shorten it for just this reason. So why would Matthew preserve this exhortation for Jewish Christians to pray that their flight not take place in the winter or on a Sabbath when travel would be difficult if their flight had already occurred and the need to pray no longer existed. We would expect him to drop that out. Furthermore, after talking about the destruction of the temple, Matthew has Jesus giving a series of parables about the end of the world, mostly in Matthew 25. That could lead some readers to mistakenly think that the end of the world would occur just after the destruction of the temple. That's another sign that Matthew was written before this happened, because if it were after, then he would clearly distinguish the material about the destruction of the temple and the material about the end of the world so that the reader wouldn't confuse these two events. Then, there are passages in Matthew that assume the temple is still standing and that provide information that would only be useful to Matthew's readers if it were still functioning. One such passage is found in Matthew 5. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. 
First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This advice was relevant to Jewish Christians while the temple was still standing, and they could go there and make an offering at the altar. But it lost the significance when the temple was destroyed. Another such passage is found in Matthew 17. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does not your teacher pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came home, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This passage is particularly important, although the reason why won't be immediately obvious to a modern Bible reader. Jesus implies in this passage that he does not need to pay the temple tax, but is willing to do so anyway to avoid giving offense. And this principle extends from him to his followers, Christians, who are also sons of God. The reason this is significant is not just that Jewish Christians wouldn't need to pay the temple tax once the structure was in ruins, although that is significant. It's also because the Romans repurposed the tax so that it supported the temple of Jupiter best and greatest, i.e. the Capitoline Temple in Rome. The Jewish historian Josephus reports the emperor Domitian also laid a tribute upon the Jews wheresoever they were and enjoined every one of them to bring two drachma every year into the capital as they used to pay the same to the temple at Jerusalem. Similarly, the Roman historian Cassius Dio states, From that time forth it was ordered that the Jews who continued to observe their ancestral customs should pay an annual tribute of two denarii to Jupiter Capitolinus. Some Jews tried to avoid paying this tax, which amounted to just two days' wages, because they thought it represented idolatry, and sometimes they would try to avoid it with the expedient of posing as Gentiles. Yet, payment was rigorously enforced, at times in humiliating ways. The Roman historian Suetonius reports, Besides other taxes, that on the Jews was levied with the utmost rigor and those who were persecuted who, without publicly acknowledging that faith, yet lived as Jews, as well as those who concealed their origin and did not pay the tribute levied upon their people. I recall being present in my youth when the person of a man ninety years old was examined before the procurator in a very crowded court to see whether he was circumcised. So they stripped a ninety-year-old man naked in public to see if he was circumcised and needed to pay the tax. Diverting money that originally supported the temple in Jerusalem to support the key temple in Rome was an enormous insult to Jewish sensibilities, and the fact that they were forced to pay it was a profound humiliation. For Matthew, if he was writing after A.D. 70 to portray Jesus as condoning the payment of this tax, would have risked confusing alienating or outraging members of his audience. Jesus could even be seen as understood as giving permission to financially support idolatry so as not to give offense. All of this points to Matthew being written before 70, so we can narrow our, our range to between 80, 55, and 70. That gives us a range of about 15 years. Can we narrow it down further? 
We have a good date for the Gospel of Luke, which was written about AD 59. So if we can establish Matthew's relationship with Luke, we could get a more precise date for his Gospel. We thus need to consider theories about how the two Gospels are related, and there are three basic ones. First, Matthew and Luke wrote independently of each other. So they didn't know about each other and can't really establish anything from that relationship. Second, Luke used Matthew in composing his gospel. So Matthew came first and then Luke used it. Third, Matthew used Luke. So Luke came first and Matthew used him. We won't go through all the evidence for these options in detail. You can check out the further resources for that, but I'll tell you which one I favor. It's the view that Mark wrote first, then Luke used Mark, and then Matthew used both Mark and Luke. Since this view has Matthew coming last of the three synoptics, it's called Matthean posteriority. It's also sometimes called the Vilki hypothesis. And what leads you to favor Matthean posteriority? The basic argument is that Matthew simply appears to be a more developed literary work. Particularly striking is the fact that sayings of Jesus that are scattered all over the place in Luke are organized into obvious topical blocks in Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount, which combines all of Jesus's major ethical teachings in one place. This is easy to explain if Matthew wrote later. He was simply an organizer, and so he organized the sayings he found in Luke and other sources. However, the reverse is harder to explain. If Luke used Matthew, then he would have had to smash Matthew's beautifully organized blocks and scatter the material around in a far less obviously organized way. At least on the level of appearances, it's hard to avoid the scholar Reginald Fuller's rather brusque assessment that if Luke used Matthew, Luke would present us with a case of unscrambling the egg with a vengeance. The scholar B.H. Streeter put the matter even more brusquely when he said that a theory which would make an author capable of such a proceeding would only be tenable if, on other grounds, we had reason to believe that he was a crank. <laughs> now, Streeter's too harsh, but I still come to the conclusion, at least tentatively, that Luke wrote before Matthew, and that would put the writing of Matthew after Luke was released in 59 and before the temple was destroyed in 70. Do we have any external evidence, evidence outside the Gospels, that might confirm that? In this case, there is a piece of confirmatory external evidence. Writing around 180 to 190, St. Irenaeus of Lyon says, Matthew also issued a written Gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome, and laying the foundation of the church. Notice that Irenaeus says Matthew wrote his gospel while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome. Peter arrived in Rome in the AD 50s, and Paul arrived, or according to some even earlier, and Paul arrived there in AD 58. The two men were then martyred there in the 60s, with Peter being martyred in 65 or 66, and Paul being martyred in 67. That would put Matthew between the release of Luke in 59 and the death of Peter in 65 or 66. We might thus estimate Matthew's composition as having been around the midpoint of that range, say, A.D. 63. 
What about the fact that Irenaeus says Matthew wrote among the Hebrews in their own dialect? What should we make of that? In Greek, the phrase for in their own dialect is te idia dialecto, uh, which could mean in their own language, Hebrew or Aramaic. And many people have understood it to mean this. On the other hand, the phrase can also just mean that he wrote in a, in a Jewish style, which would be true. Matthew is widely recognized as the most Jewish of the Gospels. So whether there was a Hebrew or Aramaic original of Matthew that was then translated into Greek, or whether he merely wrote it in Greek in a Jewish style, does not really affect the dating of the gospel. Matthew still seems to have been written around AD 63. And that brings us to the last of the gospels. John, what can we say about when it was written? We'll have a link to what I've written on this subject in the further resources, so you can check that out for fuller details. But here I'll notice just a few points. First, like the Synoptic Gospels, John does not refer to the fall of Jerusalem or the destruction of the temple in AD 70 as past events. However, it's harder to make a case from this that John was written before 70 because, unlike the Synoptics, it does not contain a straightforward prediction of the temple's destruction. It does allude to it, it seems, in John 2.19, when Jesus is speaking, and also in John 11.48, when Caiaphas is speaking. But Jesus' reference is only implicit, and the high priest is only speculating. So in neither case does Jesus outright say that the temple will be destroyed, as he does in the synoptics. Without an explicit prophecy of the temple's destruction, we would not expect a prophetic fulfillment notice. And so the fact John doesn't give us one would only amount to a kind of weak argument from silence. But there is a verse which does imply a pre-70 date in John chapter 5, where John says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Hebrew called Bethzatha, which has five porticos. The Greek word here for is, esten, or esti, is present tense, indicating a present state of affairs. So John is saying that the pool Bethzatha, also known as Bethesda, with its five porticos, exists in Jerusalem at the time he's writing. You know, it is there in Jerusalem, meaning right now. He would not have made this claim after Jerusalem fell, for as the Jewish historian Josephus reports, The Roman general Titus ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of the towers, Phazael, Hippicus, and Mariamne, and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west. Yeah, in fact, Josephus elsewhere goes on to say that if a traveler who had been to Jerusalem before came back, he would be like, where's the city? It had been so thoroughly razed. John 5, 2, that's the verse we quoted, therefore gives us reason to hold that the gospel is written before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And if this is correct, AD 70 would then serve as the upper boundary for when John was composed. And then what about the lower boundary? The early church fathers commonly regarded John as the last of the Gospels to be written. The work itself doesn't say that, but its last verse at least hints that several other Gospels were written previously. When John says, But there are also many other things which Jesus did, 
Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This suggests that John was aware of several previous books about Jesus's deeds, and these likely included one or more of the canonical Gospels. In fact, I think they included at least two. There is quite good evidence that John knew the Gospel of Mark. In fact, there is evidence that he used Mark as a template around which to organize his own Gospel. That's something I've argued on my page on the Synoptic Problem. It's also argued by the British scholar Richard Baucom in his chapter, John for Readers of Mark, in his other excellent book, The Gospels for All Christians. There are also reasons to think that John knew Luke's Gospel. I have been struck by the way John seems to expand upon events mentioned in Luke, particularly in the resurrection narratives. For example, Luke writes, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home wondering at what had happened. This is then expanded on in John chapter 20, where John gives us a fuller account of Peter and the beloved disciple running to the tomb and what they saw. Similarly, Luke states, And while they still disbelieved for joy and wondered, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. This is then expanded on in John 21, where John tells us that, the place Jesus ate the fish was by the Sea of Galilee after the disciples had gone fishing. So if John was written after Mark and Luke, that would put John sometime after the release of Luke in 59, but before the destruction of the temple in 70. In other words, in the AD 60s. Can we narrow it down any further? There's one additional factor that may help us date the gospel. Towards the end, Jesus tells Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. John then adds, This he said to show by what death he, Peter, was to glorify God. This is commonly understood, especially when it's translated this way, to mean that John's gospel was written after Peter's martyrdom in A.D. 65 or 66, and John was looking back on the event. But there is a good reason to question that. Most English translations of this verse, John 21, 19, make it sound like Peter's martyrdom is a past event. They speak of the death by which he was to glorify God. But that's not what the Greek says. The Greek text actually has the future tense for the verb at this point. The relevant verb is doxase, which means he will glorify or he shall glorify. Therefore, some of the most literal translations render the passage like this. And this he said, signifying by what death he shall glorify God. I'm uncertain why most translations render the passage the way they do. I think it's likely simply because of the prevalent view among translators that John was written after Peter's death, and so they translate the verb with the past tense, even though in Greek it's the future tense. But if the more literal translation is correct, it would appear that Peter's martyrdom is in the future at the point that John is writing or at least that it occurred so recently that John hasn't yet received news of Peter's martyrdom. 
If so, the latest possible date for John's gospel thus would be within a few weeks or months of Peter's martyrdom, and that would leave us in the 65 to 66 time frame. In view of the above, I estimate that John's gospel was written between the publication of Luke and the martyrdom of Peter in 65 or 66, so I reckon it as approximately AD 65. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the dating of the Gospels? From the faith perspective, the exact dates at which the Gospels were written doesn't matter because they were all written in the apostolic age and thus within the period of public revelation. That's true even if you accept the conventional dates that most scholars use. From the reason perspective, the exact dates of the Gospels also don't matter because the Gospels are biographies and the date when a biography is written doesn't ultimately matter. What does matter is whether the person writing it was competent and had good sources. And each of the four gospel writers was competent and they had good sources because the evidence shows they were basing their writings on eyewitness testimony. Finally, while the conventional dates for the gospels between AD 65 and 95 would be fine with me if that's where the evidence pointed, I think the evidence actually points to the gospel and acts being written earlier. I think Mark was written approximately A.D. 55, Luke was written approximately A.D. 59, Acts was written approximately A.D. 60, Matthew was written approximately A.D. 63, and John was written approximately A.D. 65. It thus appears to me that the historical books of the New Testament, meaning the Gospel and Acts, were written in the span of about a decade, between A.D. 55 and 65, just 22 to 32 years after the crucifixion. That's like the difference between the present year, 2021, and events that occurred between 1991 and 2001. Clearly within living memory and not very long ago. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener on the topic? Well, we'll have a link to my book, The Bible is a Catholic Book, where I talk about the history of the Bible, and it covers a lot of this same material, as well as a bunch of other material about the history of the Bible. We'll also have a link to Richard Baucom's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the second edition of that. Also, uh, Baucom's book, The Gospel for All Christians, and I highly recommend both of those. John A.T. Robinson's book, Redating the New Testament, which was a pivotal book in getting some modern scholars to reconsider the dates for the New Testament documents, Adolf von Harnack's book, The Dates of the Acts and the Synoptic Gospels, Jack Finnegan's Handbook of Biblical Chronology, where he deals with issues like when did Porcius Festus arrive and how does that affect the chronology of St. Paul, Andrew Steinman's book, From Abraham to Paul, which is another biblical chronology that does the same stuff, We'll have my full treatment on the dates of the Gospels, which goes into some additional evidence we couldn't cover in this podcast. Also, my page on my website that deals with the synoptic problem and links to different aspects of the synoptic problem. So you can see, for example, why I would say Mark was written first and Matthew was written last and things like that. Excellent. All right, I think it's time to move on to our mysterious feedback. And like I said, we have feedback this time from our recent episode on lie detectors. Our first feedback comes from Joe, who sent an email who said, I enjoyed your lie detectors episode and want to share a historical item from the days of the golden age of radio, which is my passion as a hobby. A show called The Big Story presented fictionalized true stories that a particular reporter was involved in that brought them some notoriety. 
they changed names and things for legal issues, but the reporter, the town, and the general story remained intact. The episode Pillars of Society is interesting in that it involved lie detection and one of the founding scientists. It's hard to believe that Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is consistently getting better. You had me at the early episodes, but unlike many podcasts, it gets richer and smoother and retains the enthusiasm. Bravo. Thank you so much, Joe. We're always uh, striving to look for ways to make the show better, and we experiment with different things and incorporate them and see what's the right balance. And so it's an ongoing work in progress, but we're always looking to improve it. Also, thank you for the link to the Big Story episode. We'll have a link in the further resources so people can download that and listen to it themselves. I haven't had a chance to yet, but old time radio is also one of my interests. And so it's a fun world that people should be more familiar with because there's a lot of great radio and a lot of great audio content, especially if you're a podcast listener, you may want to check out old time radio. Also, Joe sent us some analysis, some research that he had done of this particular episode of the big story where even though they fictionalize details like what's the name of the town, you can often use the details they do mention to figure out where this really was and find newspaper stories about it. And he had done some of that. Unfortunately, he sent that as a PDF and I didn't know where to find it on the web, so I couldn't include a link to that as well. But thank you so much, Joe. And interesting detective work, finding out the real story behind the big story. Patron Justin on Patreon writes, I really enjoyed this episode. I'm a therapist, and I used to work at an agency that treated licensed professionals who were in trouble with their licensing boards, most often due to substance use, personality issues, and misconduct. We also had our patients take lie detector tests while in our program to see if they were hiding any boundary crossings or substance use. It concerns me that such an unreliable method has such an impact on the patient's status with their licensing boards. This being said, I don't remember a single time where a patient failed the lie detector test and didn't end up revealing something they were hiding. We tried hard to not rely only on the lie detector results, but a failed test definitely had a huge effect on the person's treatment and our return-to-work suggestions. Thank you, Justin, and I appreciate the delicate situation that's involved, and I'm glad to hear that y'all are trying or were trying. I'm not, I wasn't entirely clear if you're still working with this situation, but that y'all tried not to rely exclusively on lie detector tests. That's very important. Pat writes on Facebook, this was a very, very interesting episode. It makes me reassess what my response would be if asked to take such a test. Yeah, don't take a lie detector test unless you're required to by law, and don't talk to police as part of an ongoing criminal investigation without a lawyer. Dark Green Dad Clark writes on YouTube, I applied for a city job where a polygraph was required. I took it three times with identical questions each time. The first was inconclusive, the second I failed, and the third I passed. I will never trust or base my guilt or innocence on a polygraph. And having the same set of questions result in three completely different outcomes, I don't blame you. Clever Name on YouTube writes, I myself sat for a government agency polygraph. It took like three hours, and it was the most nerve-wracking experience of my life. The examiner was hostile and aggressive. I suspect the issue is that I'm a thoughtful person who understands that my own memories and understandings can be faulty, so they, I presume, couldn't get a clear answer. The examiner attacked me when I answered yes to the control questions, trying over and over to get me to lie about them. 
It was an awful experience and is a key reason I got out of government work of that kind. I hated it. I really appreciate that clever name. I, you know, I've asked myself, well, okay, if they ask me some of these control questions, you know, I did things before I was a Christian, especially that I have not been proud of. And I would be honest on the control questions and say, yeah, I did that. And I've wondered what their reaction would be because they (laughs) want you to lie on those. They assume you're going to deny having done these things. And it's like if you admit, how are they supposed to distinguish between that and the relevant questions? But if if I'm being honest, which I strive to be, I would say, yeah, much to my shame, I did that. Luis writes by email, in 1996, as I was coming out of the Navy, I applied to the CIA. I was put on the box twice in consecutive days. The first day was terribly uncomfortable because they kept asking me if I'd ever stolen. The answer was yes, and I rattled off every example I could think of since kindergarten. Since I knew I was missing some, I was a sack of nerves. The next day, they said I was alerting on the question, have you ever taken illegal drugs? My answer was an emphatic and truthful no, but they kept saying I was lying. I didn't get the job. All these years later, I'm glad I didn't get the job, especially after certain former leaders of the organization have decided to run their mouths off on politics over the past couple of years. One thing is for certain, polygraphs are an utter scam and I will never, ever allow myself to be strapped to one again. I don't blame you at all, Luis. And in fact, even though we've already heard from several people who have taken polygraphs and been required to, we also heard from several people who took them and said, I was telling the truth, and they still said I was I, I failed. And I wanted to in, make sure we included at least one from someone who did that. So thank you very much, Luis, for letting us know about your experience. Brian Cook wrote on YouTube, Jimmy's sinisterly sweet voice never fails to make me smile. <laughs> Why, I'm so glad that you find my voice so entertaining. <laughs> Don't make me use it very often. <laughs> the voice of government PSAs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shalone Carson writes on YouTube, James Duane is Catholic. He goes to my parish. It's interesting to hear about people you know on a podcast. He's a great guy, very funny and knowledgeable. And James Duane was the attorney that we mentioned who engaged in the video debate about whether you should talk to police as part of an ongoing criminal investigation without a lawyer and how it can work against you. And the man he was debating was a police officer who got up and agreed that you should (laughs) not talk to the police as part of an ongoing investigation without a lawyer present. So it's a great video to watch. James Duane is very funny. He reminds me, and by the way, it's so cool that he's in your parish. Please say hello to him for me. Let him know about the podcast. I really found his debate entertaining. And he reminds me of someone I know here in Southern California, who is a square dance caller named Vic Carey. And Vic Carey has a lot of the same mannerisms. He can be very fast talking, very funny, some little subtle mannerisms. I once was at a caller school and Vic was interrupting one of the students so much to make amusing comments that the student got annoyed and said, sit down, either talk or watch. And he Without hesitating, Vic shot up his hand and said, I choose talking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, there's always one in a crowd. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everyone, thank you for your feedback on that episode. We really greatly appreciate it. Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? 
We have a UFO update theme. There are some stories we've been following on the UFO front that we want to update people on. There's actually three of them. First one is Luis Elizondo has indicated that he's planning on leaving the To the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences. And apparently part of the now he was the former head of the government's ATIP or OSAP. UFO program in the Navy, or at the Pentagon, I should say. And he then moved into the private sector with TTSA, but he's leaving there. And he plans, uh, apparently with a couple of his colleagues, they're planning to try to do something else to further more declassification of UFO-related stuff and to further get this out there in front of the public. He didn't indicate specifically what he was dissatisfied with, that led him and the others apparently to leave. But it, from what he said in an interview with George Knapp, it sounded like TTSA, because it's got the A in there, which stands for arts, it has a focus not just on the UFO science issue, but also things like publishing novels and things like that that are fictional that are related to this area. And I've always thought those two things didn't really fit well under the same roof. I mean, you should either build your reputation for telling fact or telling great fiction, but both, especially in a subject that's viewed as dodgy like UFOs, you really want to pick one or the other. And so I understand why he might want to move on since, and I think TTSA has gotten itself into some problems by doing things in a kind of fictionalizey way, like presenting actual results in kind of dressed up form to make them, you know, it, changing the format of a document, you know, to make it more interesting or whatever. So I, I, I can understand why you would want to do that. Our second story is about a new Navy photo of a triangular UFO or UAP, unidentified aerial phenomenon, that is emer- that emerged from the sea, and it, it it you can so you can see the picture of it yourself and read about the account. This is one again, which was like gun camera footage or camera footage taken by a military pilot. And then we have an article that contains new details about the Navy's UFO-related technology patents. You may remember we've mentioned a, an inventor that works for the Navy named Salvatore Pais, who has these bizarre science fiction-sounding patent applications that the Navy has been sponsoring, including things like reduced inertial mass drives which would mean somehow reducing the inertial mass of a craft to make it go faster, or high-temperature superconductors, which would do amazing things. And he's, there are several of these patents. And Brett Tingley over at The Drive has done a new article. They got some emails detailing the steps that the Navy was going through to try to get these patents checked out and done. Yeah, including possibly having built a demo of some sort. I thought that was fascinating reading yeah. that, that uh, article. Yeah, those are some th- three great headlines. <laughs> this this whole story just keeps getting more and more interesting as time goes on. So uh, definitely something to pay attention to. So that does it for us this time, folks. Uh, we want to hear from you. What are your theories about when the four Gospels were written? What do you think about the dates that Jimmy proposes? You can let us know online by visiting sqpn.com. 
or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what will we be talking about next time? Next Friday, we'll be looking at a mysterious monument known as the Georgia Guidestones and the message that they contain, which some have called the Ten Commandments of the Antichrist. Ooh. All right, folks, remember to like this episode on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook and be sure to retweet it on Twitter. All of your sharing of the episode and engagement with it on social media helps get the word out. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from today's discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast. Please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>